All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the ability to gather together. Lord, what a freedom that uh, many times we don't even uh, really realize anymore, uh, the privilege of being able to do this. And certainly we think of our brothers and sisters around the world that, that this is quite a risk to do. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the word of God. We thank you for the gifted uh, men and women and young people that led us in worship today, we thank you for the working of your spirit in our hearts, Lord, that as the uh, voices of the saints join together, Lord, how it, it does just resonate with that newly created heart that's within us, Lord. This is, this is indeed what we'll do for eternity, rightly give you the praise you deserve. You deserve. And so, Father, uh, we come before you to receive your word as well because we we rightly acknowledge and recognize that you are worthy to be listened to and to be heard and so we pray that you would minister through your word and lord there's going to be walls and barriers no doubt that'll jump up that will push against certain things our flesh will um, but lord we want to uh we want to die to our flesh and live to the spirit and so we want to receive from you and apply what you teach us so we thank you again for the privilege and opportunity, and we ask this today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are returning to Psalm 4. I say we're returning because we, we made some references to it last week when we were together, uh, and as you may recall, Psalm 3 and 4, that was our goal last week, Psalm 3 and 4, we didn't make it um, to do it. And part of the reason why it was our goal was because Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are very closely connected with one another. The ancient, from the times of the ancient Jews, they looked at these two Psalms as kind of like, you need to look at these together. The one leads right into the other. Uh, and so that was our goal, but we didn't get there, and that's okay. Uh, I'll remind you, I say it's okay to me, you're, I don't know what you're thinking, but it's okay. Uh, psalm 3, as you may remember, is a morning psalm. It was one of those that maybe a family might together come, pick up their scripture or whatever form that they had, and they would sing this little hymn together. Uh, they would sing Psalm 3. Psalm 4 was an evening psalm. And so as the day was coming to a, clo to a close and you know, the, the, the meal was kind of cleaned all up and everyone's getting ready for bed or whatever it might be, they might come together and they would sing Psalm 4. And so there is a close connection between these two psalms uh, and ancient tradition is almost that they, there wasn't even two. It was almost as if it was one long psalm uh, that eventually developed into being divided into the two. Now, if you go back and you look at Psalm 3, you'll notice that it points out there that it was a psalm of David. Psalm 4 does the same thing. It was a psalm of David. Psalm 3 actually tells us the context of when David wrote it, and that was, as it says, when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. And if you look at the first verse or so of Psalm 3, notice he, he speaks of, oh, how, oh Lord, how many are my foes. This was a time of distress in the life of David. It was a very difficult time in the life of David. He was literally being run out of the city of Jerusalem. And it's clear from other passages that the goal of Absalom wasn't just to get David off the throne, but it was to kill David. And so David is running for his life. There's another passage in Scripture that talks about that he ran out barefoot. You know, didn't even have time to put his shoes on or anything like that. Just get out of there and go. And as he's running and as he gets to a place of somewhat safety and he settles a bit, 
that's when this psalm, Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, it seems, from tradition, where both of them were written. 10,000 foes coming against me. So again, look at Psalm 1. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Well, 10,000 of them coming against him to kill him. Talk about a stressful situation. And yet, remarkably, even in that type of a situation, I doubt any of us are going to find ourselves in a situation that stressful. We all have stress, and I'm not minimizing that. But that stressful, I doubt, we're going to see ourselves facing. And yet, even in the midst of a situation like that, David, we learned, was able to have peace. And he was able to lay himself down to rest. Think about the things that sometimes keep you up at night. The bills, the kids, whatever it might be, those types of things that keep you up. Well, for David, it was, is somebody going to stab me if I close my eyes and get a couple of minutes of sleep? And even in that, he was able to lay himself down. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, I lay down and I slept. And I woke up again, and it was a miracle in so many ways. How comforting to know that in any one of our situations, that we too can have peace and we can have rest. And God promises that to us, those of us that have a knowledge of him, those of us that have been in right, brought into right relationship with him, he promises that we can have a peace that passes understanding. And it's an incredible gift that is ours that I think sometimes we kind of put aside. Or, yeah, I, I know that truth, but I have to worry about these things. If I don't worry about these things, they'll never solve themselves. Really? Has your worrying really solved those things? It's okay to think about them. It's okay to kind of strategize, all right, so i got to figure out a way to pay these bills. What are some solutions I can come to? But to panic over them and to worry over them, keep yourself up all night over them, is not going to accomplish anything. And so David had a peace, and he was able to rest. And as we learned, it was based on a knowledge of who God is. It was based on a knowledge of what God has done. And then it was based on a confidence of being able to go forward with those realities. And that's what God would have for us. Now, Psalm 4 goes into that concept as well. It continues, really, the thought. And so let's read through the entirety of the psalm. There's eight verses. It says, Now to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And so you have some instructions as to how this particular tune was played. It was to be played with the guitar or the harps or the lyre or something like that. Verse 1, he says, Answer me when I call, O God, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And again, there's that word selah, which means just stop. Think about that for a second. Give that some consideration. Today we did a little selah where the guys, and I think there was a lady, the gals, they went into sort of an instrumental. And it gave you some time to just think about the words you just said. And that's what we have here. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Think about that. Verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Think about it. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell 
in safety. And so working our way through, again, the title. Now, those titles that we have in there, they were part of the original. They're considered inspired. And so we know that this is a Psalm of David, as we know Psalm 2 was, Psalm 3 was, and here now Psalm 4. We know all of them were Psalms of David. But as I said a moment ago, this one doesn't tell us or provide us with the circumstances. And so we think the circumstances where it was a continuation of Psalm 3, but we can't necessarily say that for certain. But nonetheless, we do see that David finds himself in Psalm 4 in a distressing situation as he found himself in Psalm 3. Take note of his words. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 4. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. And then he'll say, so he does say, I should say in one, answer me. So he's crying to God. God, you gave me relief in my distress in the past. I'm asking you to do that again. Give me relief now in the distress that I'm facing. And he's, he's basing it on two different reasons. The first is in verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. So his confidence that God's going to answer is dependent upon these two reasons. One, the God of my righteousness. I'll come back to that. And secondly, he says in, in the verse, you have given me relief when I was in distress. So he's essentially saying there, God, do it again. God, do it again. I think it's okay to say that. God, you've done this before. You've shown yourself strong before. God, do it again in my life. It's not like you're like, okay, how many times are you going to ask? That's not what the, the Lord's not going to be bothered by it. He wants you to come back to him again and again and again. David says, God, you've given me relief before in my distress. Lord, do it again. God will continually pour out his mercy and his grace in our lives. And it's okay for us to look for him to do so again and again and again. As a matter of fact, it's the right thing for us to do. And so if you, were, if you come at it from the perspective of, look, I've asked too many things. I can't ask anymore. The Lord say, no, I want you to continue to come to me. How many times did your child come to you? Probably, if you have little ones, a lot. All right. But you want them to keep coming back to you and coming back to you and coming back to you, and as does the Lord. Do you have a track record with God? I think one of the sweetest things about growing older in the Lord, no amens, please, uh, about my age. But I, I've, I came to know the Lord when I was 17 years old, so I'm 52, three. How old am I, Kendra? Two? You're, you're one year older, so I'm three. I'm two, you're three? Okay. I, well, she was in school a year ahead of me, I remember. Uh, it changes every year, I forget. So I've been walking with the Lord for that period of time, whatever that math is. And honestly, the, the thing about experience is it allows you to take a breath in circumstances and just pull back and say, God has done this before. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he'll do it again. God's given me peace in the midst of this crazy circumstance that I never thought, and I thought I was going to lose it. And he's come in, and he's given me peace. I know he'll do it again. He's shown himself strong. And so you have this confidence, and you can begin to develop sort of this track record with God. I don't have to wonder if God can. I know he can. I don't have to wonder if God will. I know he will. And that gives us a peace and the ability to have rest, even in the midst of crazy circumstances, to go forward. Now, I said I would come back to it. Look at the beginning of verse 1, again, where he says, O God 
of my righteousness. That was the first reason why he was confident that he could ask God to answer his prayer, and he was confident that God would. He says, O God of my righteousness. Now, it's very important to understand that David is not saying, God, I'm a good person. You need to answer my prayer. He's not saying, God, I'm a good person, and so you have to do this. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, answer my prayer, O God, because I'm righteous, and you have to. Because, and we know that because the context of Scripture as a whole teaches that truth, that it's God's grace and it's God's mercy that is poured out in his life, our life. He doesn't owe us anything. There, here's some Scriptures. Psalm 14. This is in the Old Testament, obviously. This was also written by David. There it says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, if there are any who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have been corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so at our base, our nature is we are separated from God. There are none that do good, not even one. Paul said in the New Testament, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so if it wasn't for the grace of God and the mercy of God for forgiving every one of us that does not do good, that does not have a heart after doing good, if God didn't intervene, we would go the direction of our non-goodness. But because God intervenes and he instills within us a new heart, we can begin to pursue righteousness. And so now David is not saying, oh God of my righteousness, you owe me. God, I'm such a good guy and they're bad, bad guys. Hear my case. He's fully acknowledged, he, and he has fully acknowledged that as a sinner, he was completely dependent on God, both for God's mercy and for God's grace. And that any righteousness that is found in him is what Christ has created in him, or what God has created in him, and not of his own. And so the righteousness here that he is referring to is based on the rightness of his behavior toward those that are now wronging him. That's what he's getting at. And so Absalom has come up against him and is trying to kill him. Well, David had never wronged Absalom in that way, that, Dave, that Absalom is justified to come against him. Shimei, remember him from last week, I, I called him a dirty word, I apologize. Uh, Shimei there is mocking uh, David as he's running for his life. My wife referred to him, he's kicking him when he's down. And David hadn't wronged Shimei in that particular way. 10,000 people had gathered up against David and are chasing him out of the city. And David was the beloved king of Israel and hadn't wronged them in that particular way. So that's the righteousness that he's referring to, the rightness of his behavior toward those that had rebelled against him. All of these actions were unjustified actions. They were unjust, the actions against him. And so facing that unjust situation, and you may find yourself in it, and some of us here, we may find ourselves in unjust situations a lot because we live in a fallen world. And unfortunately, people treat each other wrong. And sometimes we treat each other wrong because of our status in life, because of our race or whatever it might be. And we might find ourselves facing unjust situations with more commonality than others. 
But all of us are going to find ourselves in an unjust situation where we're wrongfully being treated. And David here is certainly in that situation. And so what does he do? He doesn't fight back. He doesn't turn and do this or do that. David looks to the Lord. As we see here, he looks to the just one to take up his own cause. And so though many might, might have been coming against him, and again in verse 1 of chapter 3 he said, Lord, how they've increased that trouble me. Many are they that come against me. David was confident in his integrity. And David knew that God knew the true facts of the situation. And so many may be saying what they're saying, but David was confident in his own integrity to be able to say of the circumstance, this is an unjust circumstance, this is wrong, I shouldn't be treated this way, and he goes to the just one to make sure that justice occurs here on the earth. Remembering how God had answered his prayers in his past, David encourages himself and he goes to God again. He goes on in verse 2. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Say la. Now here is the immediate cause for the distress. And so whether it does connect with uh, Absalom coming against him or it doesn't, we see here the immediate cause, immediate cause for the distress is what people are saying against him or saying about him. It says again, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? They're, they're lying against David. Now the word men there, a lot of versions translate it men of rank. And so officials in David's kingdom had turned David's honor into shame. And they're speaking these vain lies against David. Things like, as we saw in Psalm 3.1, things like, there's no help for him in God. You can cry out to God if you want, David. He's not going to listen to you because you're a horrible sinner. Vain lies that were spoken against him. Or again, Shimei and his many accusations that David was getting what he deserved. Remember he said there, this is for the way you treated Saul's family. Men of rank. A rank, by the way, that David would have appointed them to. Because he was the king. And these were his officials. And now they turn on him. And they mock him. And they say lies against him. And they insist to him that God was against him. But we know God wasn't against David. Though the whole world was saying it, it seems, God wasn't against David. And so David calls to God and he says, God, vindicate me. David looks to the just one to correct the injustice. That's really hard to do, isn't it? That's it. That is hard to do. If you don't agree... That's okay, I guess. I don't know. What, I'm, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, or something like It's hard. Because you want to stand up for yourself. And you want to cut back with a word. And you want to swing out with a fist or whatever it might be. David entrusts himself, his reputation, his name, and he gives it to God. And he said, I'll let God fight my case. I remember Chuck Smith used to say, you can fight your own battles or you can let God fight your battles. You decide what you want to do. Now notice the order of events in David's response to this distress. This is really important. So David is distressed. People are coming against him. They're saying what they're saying. They're doing what they're doing. Notice verse 1. Where does David bring it? He brings it to God. 
So he begins, the first thing he does is he prays a prayer to God and he asks God to answer him. Notice verse 2, then he talks to the men that are causing his problem. He says, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you speak vain lies and so on? That's a really good, healthy model for us as we approach the difficulties of life that we're experiencing. And especially when those difficulties are with other people in this life. Go to God first, and then to the person you're having a problem with. Go to God first, and then to the person. So often, we don't even have time to go to God first, because the first thing that comes out of our mouth is what we say. Or the first thing that comes out of our muscles is what we do. David first goes to God, then he goes to the people. And I think that pattern is a healthy one, because if you do, I think likely one of three things is going to occur. First, you go to God first, you may first receive the wisdom to let the offense go. The Lord might just minister to your heart and you say, yeah, you, you've done the same type of thing to people. You just need to let them go. Forgive them. He might give us the wisdom to forgive that person and to move on. Secondly, other times, the Lord, during this time of prayer, he'll reveal, you know what? You do need to go to that other person. They've offended you, they've said what they said, they've hurt you, there's something that's developing in your heart, and you need to deal with that issue so it doesn't stay there for the rest of your days. And so the Lord will incline you to go to the person and to speak to them about that confrontation. And then lastly, and I think this is the most important thing, if he does motivate you to go and speak to that other person, he'll do a work in your heart so that you go to them with the right heart attitude that you go to them in humility even. And that's the best way probably to work out this situation. So you go to the other person, great. But if you go to them in pride and in arrogance and you're screaming at them and yelling at them and cursing them and belittling them, that's probably not going to work itself out. You're probably going to have more problems later. But if you go to them in humility and you go to them with this sense of, look, I wrong people as well, but what you said, it really hurt me. And you try to work it out in that regard, you have the best chance of success. So David first, he goes to God, and then he goes to those that had been unjustly treated or unjustly treating him. We need to follow that pattern. David goes on, verse 3. He says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now it's unclear here if David is saying this to himself or he's saying this as part of verse 2 to those that were slandering his name. But either way, the point, we can see what is living in David's heart by what he says here. Either way, the point is that David knew that he and all that are godly are set apart unto God. David recognized that those that are set apart unto God, they have a unique and a special relationship with God that those who don't know God do not have. And so those that are set apart, that's the word that is used there, we are forgiven. Those that are set apart unto God have been cleansed, as John talks about in his epistle. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. Those that are set apart unto God, we have a special relationship with God. We are his children. Those that are set apart unto God have a special relationship with God. They have access to God through prayer. We have his Holy Spirit. He promises us our wisdom. 
There's a million other ways, I'm sure, that there's a uniqueness of the relationship that a person that knows God has with a person that simply knows about God. And he has blessed us with that. And because of that special relationship that David has with God, which isn't because, well, he was the great psalmist of Israel. It's because he was a person of faith. So every one of us here that are followers of Christ, that are people of faith, we can have the same relationship with God that David had with God. And David had assurance. And it's an assurance that we can have that when he called to God, the Lord would always take his call. Some of you are important people here. And if you call and your little name comes up, people will drop what they're doing and they'll take your call. Most of us, we get sent to voicemail or whatever. That's okay. We're just regular people. We get sent to voicemail. We're lucky if people pick up. We're surprised these days. I can't believe you're there. You know, I had no idea you'd be there. Well, David had a relationship with God. And you, if you're a Christian, you have a relationship with God. And this is remarkable to me. Think about it. You know, there's a couple hundred, I don't know how many people. There's a lot of people here this morning here. And if every one of us, if we bowed our head and had a moment, let's just pray. Just a moment to pray. Every one of our prayers would be heard directly by God. Every one of us has, I don't know, that's crazy, but has the ability to come into his presence individually, and he gives us full attention. And that's a gift that we get to enjoy. And so David has this insurance. When he calls, God would hear him. And the answer to his prayers, sometimes we ask things of God. Other times we just unload with the Lord, and he hears but if indeed we are asking, two things are going to occur. One, God's going to hear, uh, we know, the, hair, the prayer of his people. He may not always answer the way we want, but we can be incredibly confident in this. He will answer according to what he knows is best for our circumstances. And so there are times we'll cry out to God, and we have it all laid out, and this is what you need to do. And if you could get it done by Friday, Lord, that'd be awesome. And we have it here, and the Lord says, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a possibility. But that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking I would do the complete opposite, and it's going to be awesome, and you're going to love it in the end. Because he knows what's according to our best. The prophet Isaiah, he said this. He said, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Of course, Isaiah not speaking about himself, but the Lord there. And one reason why God's thoughts are higher than our own is because he knows truly what we need. And we only think we know what we need. But God hears his children when they call. And he knows how to answer according to what's best for us. And so David confidently could make his prayer to God. David goes on in verse 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In your own heart and be silent. Now those circumstances that David was facing, no, no doubt, made him angry. Particularly that fellow Shimei. I don't like him. I'm sorry. I don't like Shimei. And no doubt it made him angry. And it bothered him. And it frustrated him. There are things that make us angry. And truthfully, there are things that should make us angry. They should bother us. Often we use the phrase righteous anger. And so there are things that should really bother us. You know, I'll tell you, watching the news... Uh, in the days after the Hamas attack on Israel, it just made me angry. And the more, you know, you hear coming out about things, you just want to go and do something. It's horrible. It's ang it, it causes anger. 
you know, you hear somebody is hurting children or somebody that can't really defend or help themselves. That should make you mad. And if it doesn't bother you, that should concern you. Things like that. There are things in which there should be a righteous anger. But here's what I think oftentimes happens. Many times our anger isn't prompted by sort of a righteous anger. Rather, it comes because we were offended or we were bothered or we don't like the results of a particular circumstance. And so even if it is one of those situations that you might call a situation that might lead to righteous anger, we need to constantly make sure that our righteous anger is indeed righteous. And even when it is, we also have to make sure that our response to that righteous anger doesn't cross the line and become sin. I, I have to tell you, watching the news as I was, I was coming up with all kinds of plans that crossed the line into sin. David counsels himself, and that's such a good practice, isn't it? We, we got a lot of words for other people. We need to counsel ourselves, too. And he tells himself to be angry and to not sin. The Apostle Paul gave the same counsel in the book of Ephesians when he said, literally, be angry and do not sin. Plagiarism. It's bad. I think it's okay in the Bible. How important that we do not allow our hearts to descend from the place of righteousness to unrighteousness because of the actions of others. And with the godliness that was coming against David, again, he had reason to be angry, but that, didn't, that does not and it never does give him permission to sin. And instead, after reminding himself not to sin, notice what he does. He encourages himself instead. And so he could stew over the, anger, the situation that causes anger. But instead, notice he says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. The idea is to, spend, to be quiet and to spend some time thinking and praying. The word that is used there for ponder is the word from which we get that word meditation. And it refers not to that idea of emptying your mind like the Eastern religions do, but filling your mind, filling your heart with God's word and how God wants to speak into that particular circumstance. And you can stew on that which is causing you to be angry, or instead you could stew on the word of God and the counsel of God and the direction of God and what he has to say about how David should respond to this situation. He says, ponder, lay on your bed, ponder these things. Verse 5, he goes on, he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Again, counseling himself. And all of us, as we, we kind of tune in here and we listen, he counsels himself. He speaks here of offering a right sacrifice. All right, going before the Lord, sacrificial system, all that kind of stuff. But then notice, at the same time as he says, do this religious activity, at the same time as he says that, and then he says, and put your trust in the Lord. Counseling himself, put your trust in the Lord. There is value connected with religious service. Doing the right thing, going to church, you know, those kinds of things. There's value in that. But David, what he also knows is those sacrifices could never replace trust in the Lord. It always comes back to David's faith and then his actions. Not his actions are going to make him right before God. David, nor anyone else, will ever be justified by his works. 
no matter how many sacrifices he offered, the only thing that we can be justified before God by is our faith, our trust in God and the work that God has done. Works follow faith. Works should be present in the life of a believer, but works must always follow faith as far as being right with God is concerned. And so David, he's going to perform those duties, but he's not going to rely upon those duties to make him right with God. He's going to put his trust in the Lord. He goes on in verse 6, and he said, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart, David says, the quote's over, you've put more joy in my heart than they, they have when their grain and their wine abound. Now earlier David talked about the vain words and the lies that they were speaking against him. Back in chapter 3, you can look over at verse 1, he talked about how they taunted him and his relationship with God. Here in verse 6 of chapter 4, that the voice of that cynic returns. Who will show us some good? Notice David's response. Notice what he does. He simply lifts up, uh, he, he lifts his head to the Lord. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. He's hearing all that he's hearing from those around him, but he says, Lord, look on me. Lift up the light of your face upon me, O Lord. Again, what's he do? He responds by leaving it with the Lord. They're saying, no one, God's not going to show you any good. There's no help for him in God. There's no salvation for him in God. And David, essentially, I think what he's saying here is this. Lord, you show them who some good will be shown upon. That's very unclear. I'm going to try that again. He says, Lord, you show them who will some good and to whom you will show it. Who are you going to show good to, God? They're saying, not me, but Lord, lift up your face upon me and show me some good. Lift up your face upon me and right this wrong. Again, David entrusts himself to the Lord. Despite what the adversaries are saying, despite what they're thinking, David entrusts himself to God. He says, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Notice, you've put more joy in my heart. He's talking about when their grain, when their wine abound, when they're feasting and everything is great and they're celebrating life and they have everything that they need. He's saying, God, you've put more joy in my heart when they're at that pinnacle of life. And remember the context. David is actively in the midst of a circumstance of distress, likely the rebellion of his son Absalom. And he talks about the joy that he has in his heart. This is not some unique blessing that just David can enjoy. It's the what every one of us as his followers can enjoy, that even in life's distressing circumstances, we can have peace, we can have rest, and we can have joy. I'm reminded of when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians. If you're not familiar, Paul wrote that. That's one of what are called the prison epistles. Four books of, in our New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned for his faith and for his ministry. And one of those is the book of Philippians. And it's a four-chapter book. I think it's eight times in that book he specifically refers to the joy that he has. Another four or five times he talks about the others rejoicing in the circumstances they find themselves. So the central theme of the book of Philippians is this concept of joy. And eight times he talks about the joy that he presently has as he's writing this book, as he's sitting in a dungeon somewhere, 
wrongfully imprisoned, waiting to be executed. Uh, he, does, he wasn't. Uh, he came out of jail, then he went back, and then he was killed. But when he wrote uh, those particular books, he didn't know what the future held, and yet he had joy, even in the circumstances. Anybody can be joyful when the money's flowing in, and everything is prosperous, and everybody loves you, and nobody has a word to say against you. But David here, he demonstrates that he could be joyful even in times of distress. And the reason is, is because his joy was not dependent on outward circumstances. His joy was dependent upon his position with God. And David had a right position with God. And so he could have joy. How sad it is when a person's happiness and peace and rest and joy just comes from the size of their bank account or the circumstances of their life. David, joy. Paul, joy. You and I can have joy. Verse 8 goes on. It says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Again. How do you go to bed and how do you sleep in the midst of all those circumstances? Anyone can lie down in the midst of their distress and toss and turn all night. David could lie down in the midst of his distress and go to sleep because God had put a peace in his heart. He could confidently drift off that the Lord was sovereign and in control. His safety and his peace came from the Lord. And that's, that's a great gift. It's a gift that God gives to his children, those that are seeking to walk with him in integrity. And, and I would encourage you, take advantage of that gift in your life. Jesus said this, in this world you will have trials. In this world, you will have tribulation, I believe is how it's worded in a lot of our versions. We live in a less than perfect world. And we live in less than perfect circumstances, which mean difficulties will come. And you can, here's a promise for you, you can confidently expect that difficulties will come to your life. Amen? Amen. Oh, man. Can I get one of the little Bible promise books for my... Uh, kitchen table, you can confidently expect that difficulties will come this side of heaven. And whether that's from an actual enemy or whether it's something like a physical difficulty, financial difficulties, psychological difficulties, those sorts of things that all of us are going to experience, or it's that internal struggle and that battle that is common to man that the scripture talks about. You can confidently expect those difficulties are going to come. But here, I think, is the wonderful truth that a passage like this reminds us of is that we do not need to become victim to those difficulties. And so those difficulties, they don't need to rob us of the joy that is ours, which comes from being in right relationship with God. David faced difficulties. I said it earlier. I still believe it. Far greater than probably the ones we're going to experience and in the midst, he was able to possess peace and joy and rest. I'm going to close with, I think, this. Well, I know what I'm doing. Uh, I'm closing with this. Here's how David was able to arrive at the place of joy or stay there. I'm not sure if he doubted. It seems like in chapter 3 he did. But here's how David was to arrive back at that place of peace and rest and joy. First is searching out his own heart and making sure there was no sin. No sin that was causing God to kind of remove his hand of blessing. So the first thing he does is search out 
his own heart. It's not recorded here, but this is a prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O God, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The concept, going before God, seeking him, searching him out, letting him reveal if there's something going on that is within us, and then agreeing with him, confessing it as sin, and then walking ahead in the way everlasting. And so David, in the beginning, he talked about his righteousness, his integrity, searching out his own heart, making sure there was no sin that you might link to the circumstances he was facing. Second thing that he does is he casts his cares upon the Lord. He goes to the Lord. He lays them out before the Lord. Peter spoke in the New Testament. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Isn't that interesting? You know, you think about the Lord. He's very busy. He's got a lot going on, a lot to worry about. I don't want to bother him with these things. No, no. He loves you. He wants you to come. And so you come and you cast your cares upon him, and he receives them. He welcomes them. I understand. You enter into his heart. And then lastly, thirdly, David, the example that he, he gives us is he takes his frustrations, he takes his hurts, he takes his fears, he takes other people's accusations, he takes all of those things to the Lord, and then he leaves them there with the Lord. And so we see in, in verse 7 of chapter 3, David called to God to save him. God, save me. And then he reminded himself in chapter 4, verse 5, to put his trust in God. He goes to God, and he, he keeps going back to God. So the author of Psalm 119, he said it this way. He says, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. And so even in our affliction, we can be comforted. And so remind yourself again and again and again, you do not need to become a victim of your emotions. Your circumstances don't have to force how you respond to those circumstances. You can give them to the Lord. You can perpetually be a recipient of his peace. And even in the midst of difficult circumstances, you can continue to walk in the joy that is ours that is found in him. That's the example of David. And he puts it into words in ways that you and I, might, I don't even know how to express it. But he was gifted in such a way that he was, put it into, he was able to put it into words. It's in this particular book that we have of the Psalms. And, that, and this reality, it resonates with our hearts. And I encourage you, let it resonate with your heart. And so don't go right back to that default response when your problem comes this week or tomorrow or whatever it might be. Don't just go right back to the default response you've always been going to. Remind yourself that like David, you can go to the Lord and that you can maintain your joy even in the midst of those circumstances. Sound fair? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, I, I'm just uh, mindful of the fact that we never stop growing. Lord, we continue to discover more and more of who you are and the work you want to do within our hearts. And Lord, though we may not know everything now that we might know in 30 years from now, Lord, we know that you're with us, you're guiding us through the process, you're taking us down the pathway uh, of 
of ever, the everlasting pathway. And so, Lord, we want to be in sweet communion with you, unhindered from anything. And so draw us more, Lord, to yourself. Teach us a greater dependence on you. And we know that that'll be for our good. And we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.